This talk comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 24th chapter. And in the second article or paragraph of that chapter, we read about God's purpose for marriage. There are three things that are listed here. It says, marriage was ordained, first, for the mutual help of husband and wife, secondly, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed, and third, for preventing of uncleanness. So even though the orientation and emphasis on this talk is going to be primarily for singles uh, as to what they should look for in a Christian spouse, I wanted to frame it in these terms of the confessional statement on what the purpose is of marriage, because I think as we look at the purpose of marriage, it provides us with a lot of insights uh, into this question about what should we be looking for in a husband or a wife. And so, let's begin then with that first head here, which is that God ordained marriage. Yeah. God ordained marriage uh, for the mutual help of husband and wife. So that mutual, of course, the, the husband helps the wife and the wife helps the husband. That's the first purpose, the confession says, is why God ordained marriage. And so, as we look at that first head, I want to start my first point, which is that for Christians... If you are going to be a mutual help, if you're going to be of any help to your husband or to your wife, whichever the case may be, then as a believer, you must marry in the Lord. The expression in the Lord is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. And the idea is that we should only marry someone who has a credible profession of Christian faith. And furthermore, not only that, but I would assert that that text, to marry only in the Lord, quote-unquote, also means that you should only marry someone who has the same principles and opinions about the Christian faith as you do, as your opinions are formed by your conscience being bound to the Word of God. Do you understand what I mean? So in other words, marrying in the Lord is not simply that we should marry another believer, but also that we should marry someone who's of the same mind in those spiritual and religious things that have the same distinctives, if you will, about the faith. And you'll see more what I mean as, as I proceed. But this principle that... A believer should not marry an unbeliever. We see this taught in the scripture, not only in that place in 1 Corinthians 7, where we see that you're to marry only in the Lord, but also, for example, in perhaps a well-known place in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this place is actually much broader than about marriage, but certainly marriage is a justified application for this place. And the place I'm speaking of starts in verse 14, where we read, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. <clears throat> For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? 
And what concord with Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now, the importance of this doctrine from Scripture cannot be overemphasized. And you can see how this point of of doctrine fits under this first head, that the husband and the wife should be a mutual help to each other. Because if one has a profession of faith and the other does not, how can there be that mutual helpfulness? As we read in another place in Scripture, can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos chapter 3, verse 3. And so the point that I made that marrying in the Lord does not merely mean that you have a profession of faith, but it also means that you're in agreement with the distinctives of your faith. We also see this indicated in the confession again in the same chapter, chapter 24. We read, It is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. And so I want you to understand that differences in your theology is not simply academic. There are many real-world practical consequences of your theology. And so, as it applies here, if there are two believers and they want to marry one another, what if one is a Calvinist and one is a Charismatic? How are they going to worship together? What will they do with exclusive psalmody? How would they agree on what church to go to? Because they have such radically different views on worship, don't they? What if a Calvinist marries a Baptist? What will they do once they have children? Will they baptize their children as infants or not? You see, there's some immediate practical consequences of these distinctives. What if a Sabbatarian marries a broad evangelical who has never been exposed to biblical teaching on the fourth commandment? What's every week, every Sunday, is there going to be conflict? Is there going to be tension in the family? What if someone who, for religious principles, does not keep certain holidays, such as Christmas or Easter, rather, marries someone who loves the old family traditions in keeping these holidays? These are practical points that should be worked out before you get married. Now, on this point of doctrine, there is a very intriguing book that, that devotes itself completely to this very point and is written, interestingly, by none other than Daniel Defoe. Daniel Defoe, who is well known for uh, novels and other writings such as uh, Robinson Crusoe, he also wrote a book called Of Religious Courtship Being Historical Discourses on the Necessity of Marrying Religious Husbands and Wives Only as also of husbands and wives being of the same opinions in religion with one another. The book is a very good read, and I highly recommend it. Uh, I think it is available now if you're interested. This book is written in a form of a novel. Primary characters are a father and three daughters. And so 
I've excerpted several of the dialogues that come between the characters in that book, and I abstracted from those dialogues the arguments that the characters are making. I want to share with you the arguments. This is not going to be uh, in dialogue form as it is in the book, so the book would be far more captivating. But I think there's some really great points here that are argued in the book that I want to, to bring to you. And so, what if you think that when you're thinking about marrying someone else and you have differences in these, these religious distinctives, what if you think, well, if that person is not of my opinion, I can change and I can be of their opinion, and so then we can be in agreement one way or another. But this thinking, is, I tell you, is very dangerous, and you must realize what it means. It means that you yourself have not yet determined your opinions about the Christian faith. Would you think the same way if this other person was a Roman Catholic, for example? And so you may say, well, if they are a Christian Catholic, then I'll be a Catholic Christian. And you may say, well, besides, all marriage is really just a leap into the dark one way or another. It is true that there is a hazard in every change of our lives. We risk our peace, our affection, our freedom, our fortunes, but we should never risk our Christian faith. Marriage should not be a leap into the dark as to your Christian faith, however it may be so otherwise. The faith of your prospective marriage partner should be clear, whatever else may be doubtful. That should be looked into and perfectly satisfied, whatever else is neglected. Mistakes in this regard are fatal to both sides, and the consequences are miserable for the entire family. And so first, let me make some arguments about the effects of being unequally yoked in a marriage on the married couple. God should be worshipped in the marriage with one heart and with one voice. But what union can there be in your marriage if you hold to two different opinions about worship, or if there is a clashing of different principles of belief? You will know each other's opinions, but you will soon learn to avoid talking about them once you're married. And where is the union, then, in your spiritual thoughts and feelings? What help will a man and his wife be to one another in praying to God either by themselves or with each other. The zeal, the affection, the uniting of their hearts in worship, they're praying with and for one another. Won't this all be lost? And what about public worship? God has made you one if you're married, but will he be served by you as two? God has joined you together, and yet will you be divided in serving him? Neither one heart nor one voice will be heard in your worship. You will set up two altars, as it were. One worships here, and the other over there. And though your faces may be turned to heaven, you will turn your backs on each other as soon as you set out to go to your separate places of worship. If after marriage you become more serious about your faith, you will see your husband or wife as someone who is deceived and may be outside of the way to salvation and outside of God's blessing and protection. Whenever you look at each other, it will be with sighs and heavy hearts. You will avoid talking about religious subjects, for you cannot bring up the least serious thing without it leading to distracting thoughts and arguments. 
You will strive to remember your affection and love for one another just so that you don't say anything that you will later regret. The most tender and engaging temperament, the most sincere and warm affection in your husband or wife will become, in this context of being unequally yoked, the most dangerous weapon for attacking your religious convictions. Think about it. Anger and malice, on the other hand, are powerless to persuade you to go against your own beliefs. But love and kindness from your husband or wife will prove to be the most effective way of tearing down your resolve. As the saying goes, force may indeed the heart invade, but kindness only can persuade. Your affections for your husband or wife will become your worst snare, ironically. Your love will become your temptation to give up those, those distinctives of belief that you're convicted about. And the affection of your husband or wife will bring you the closest to overturn your own beliefs. The kinder he or she is to you, the more likely it will be to undo you. Everything that endears him or her to you doubles your danger. The more he or she loves you, the more you'll be inclined to yield. Your only mercy then Ironically and sadly, it's for your spouse to be rude and unkind to you. Then your own beliefs will not be threatened. It is indeed a sad case where to be miserable is your only safety. But such is the case of everyone that is thus unsuitably matched to one another. If your husband or wife is kind, it will be a snare to you. His or her fighting with you will actually be your protection. And even if you are able to resist quarreling with each other, which would be indeed quite an achievement, what is this to a happy life? Next, consider the effects of a marriage where there's this unequal yoking, the effects they would have on your children. Think about that. How will your children be guided? How will they be educated? How will God be worshipped in your family, in your home? And if you give in to the struggle, will your children be brought up in popery if, if your spouse is Roman Catholic, or in secularism, or some other false religion? What tender mother, having fixed her opinion as to what she thinks is most agreeable to the word of God, could bear to see her children not brought up according to those principles of the Christian faith? And the more conscientious and religious she is, the more steadily she will cleave to it as her duty. But at the same time, so may be the case with the man. And so, there would be a constant grief and uneasiness in the family. What will the faith of the children themselves look like? Some of them will go with the father, perhaps. Some with the mother. Some will worship in this mount. Some will only worship in Jerusalem, as it were. Some will kneel down in prayer with the father, some with the mother, until when they have all grown up to adulthood, they may learn to not pray at all. Family education, united parental instruction, caution against various falsehoods, these will all be dreadfully mangled and divided. Until in the end, the children come to nothing And when they grow up and leave home, past the years of their formative instruction, all shaping and molding for good by their parents, 
will be lost. Do we really want to be in such a marriage where there is this unequal yoking? The Puritan William Gouge, who was a, a prominent member of the Westminster Assembly, in his book of Domestical Duties, lays down the same emphasis here as in Daniel Defoe's book. He says that of all things which a couple should have, piety, he says, is of greatest consequence. He writes that they should be, quote, of the same faith and of the same mind and heart, unquote. He goes on to say, this is one of the most principal points that are comprised under that proviso given by the Holy Ghost in choosing a yoke fellow in these words, in the Lord. And in the margin, he refers to the same place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. He says, there is no such means to increase love, to preserve peace, to provoke unto all duty, make helpful one to another in all things and at all times, as having a common bond in your Christian faith. Hereby, he says, shall there be made both able to do more good one to another and capable to receive more good one from another, especially in the best things, even in those which concern their spiritual edification in this world and eternal salvation in the world to come. There would be a, quote, mutual partaking one from the other of those gifts and graces which either of them receive from Christ their head. And as believers, they would be more and more edified by each other. Such could not but reap from each other much comfort and profit every way and will know much happiness in their marriage if there is that unity in their religious beliefs and principles and opinions. In a similar fashion, the Puritan Richard Baxter in his celebrated work, Christian Directory, states that your spouse should not have any prejudicate opinions in religion which make you too unequal. Differing opinions in religion are much more tolerable in persons more distant than in so near relations. You see what he's saying? This doctrine is not to say that we should be uncharitable. It's not that we should be uncharitable to others you know, that we meet or that are outside of the home. But there's a difference between what's out of doors and what is indoors. There's a difference between uh, people that you know, your friends, and your spouse. And so it is not a matter of uncharitability to have this common bond with your spouse in religion. This, then, I'd like to say, under this first head of a mutual helpfulness between the husband and wife, is the first and most important point for what is necessary in this mutual helpfulness. And also, it is the most important element which any Christian should look for in a spouse. In summary, your spouse, if you are a believer, should be a Christian, Godly in doctrine, practice, and worship. Though not perfectly so, we're not saying that. But also, they must hold to the same principles and opinions of your religion as you do. Yours, being determined, is your conscience is bound to the Word of God. And so, by laying down this religious principle 
as first and foremost, because it is most important. I, I do not want to give the impression that I'm saying that being attracted to the person is not important. No, I'm not saying that as long as you know all these religious opinions and principles line up, then you're all set and you're good to go. No, there should be a mutual attraction to each other. In fact, I would say... If you marry someone that you're not attracted to, it's a great injustice to them. Do you see? Marriage, there should be this, this, uh, this close bond of affection. And how can there be that if there isn't this attraction to each other? Uh, this physical attraction is a blessing and a gift from the Lord. Think about this. Think about in the case of Job. Uh, Job... Of course, as we all know, went through many afflictions and suffering. And then if you read at the very end of the book of Job, you read how God blesses him and restores to him all of his things, even many children and all these possessions. And it says the Lord doubled his wealth and his possessions. And he was a very wealthy man from the outset of the book. But one interesting thing that is easy to miss in that context of the blessing that the Lord showers upon Job is that we read in Job chapter 42, verse 15, that in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. You see? In that context, what it's saying is that it's a blessing from the Lord that his daughters were fair or beautiful. And so we should not despise the good gifts that the Lord is pleased to give us. Now, you may anticipate the following point, but I must give it nonetheless. And as it is in all good gifts, those are the things that are usually the first things to be treated as idols. Those are things that are good in themselves, but the problem is because of our sin, we devote our hearts to those things in excess. We have an inordinate affection for those things. And so it is with God's good gift of physical beauty that oftentimes there's too much emphasis placed on that for marriage. As J.I. Packer says, as he discussed the Puritan perspective, he writes, beauty of mind and character matter more than beauty of face and body. And also... Henry Smith, the the preacher of the 16th century, the Puritan, this is from a sermon on marriage. He uh, preached that as God respects the heart, so must we respect the heart because it's the heart that must love and not the face. Do you see? Love comes from the heart. It doesn't come from the beautiful face. And love is more important than the beauty Now, another key to this mutual helpfulness between the man and the woman in marriage is a very simple concept. What do you think is a very essential part of marriage that is so important and so simple? What do you think it would be? We can have this exchange because it's not a sermon, it's more of a lecture. Any ideas? What is something that is essential to marriage, but it's, it's a very simple and obvious thing. 
being able to cook. I heard that. <laughs> and that's been my own experience as well. Uh, my wife was the one who spoke up. Um, but here it is. And again, to quote from the Puritan Henry Smith, a married couple quite simply should be a pair of friends. He says that when you choose who you will marry, choose someone you will enjoy. It's the simple thing that is most important, essential to marriage, is friendship. Jay Adams puts it this way. He sums up marriage as a covenant of companionship. That's what he believes is a good summary of what marriage is all about, a covenant of companionship. And again, if we quote from uh, the prominent member of the Westminster Assembly, William Gooch, he writes that there must be this mutual liking for each other. You should not rush into marriage before you know that there's this mutual liking, before you know that there's this friendship, this deep friendship. He makes this illustration that the mutual love and liking of each other is like a glue between the couple. He says that if the couple are shaken while that glue is still moist, then the bond will not hold. Do you see? So there must be this, this mutual love and liking and enjoyment of each other in friendship if you are to marry that person. In a similar fashion, we read from the Puritan Richard Baxter, it is a mercy, and he's speaking here in the context of marriage, It is a mercy to have a faithful friend that loves you entirely and is as true to you as yourself, to whom you may open your mind and communicate your affairs, and who would be ready to strengthen you and divide the cares of your affairs and family with you, and help you to bear your burdens and comfort you in your sorrows, and be the daily companion of your lives and partaker of your joys and sorrows. This is a picture of that friendship that should be there in marriage. He goes on to say, And it is a mercy to have so near a friend to be a helper to your soul. No, we talked about how there should be this common bond in the faith. That's not possible if you're unequally yoked. But if you are together in this common bond of faith, then you can be a mutual helper to one another to your soul, to join with you in prayer and other holy exercises, to watch over you and tell you of your sins and dangers, to stir you up in the grace of God, to remember you in prayers to the life to come, to cheerfully accompany you in the way of holiness. All those great, great benefits of being married to a fellow believer is lost if if you marry an unbeliever. And so next... I want to speak to a contemporary error in our thinking, even as it's connected with friendship within marriage. Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, says that God says he would make for Adam and help meet for him. In other words, a help that's suitable. There's this suitability in in marriage between uh, the two different people in the couple. But I'm afraid that in our day, we take this idea of suitability and we truncate it. 
we think of it only in terms of what we might call and what we, we hear spoken of as compatibility. Compatibility is the idea that we should be alike in possessing qualities in common as far as possible. Sometimes when we hear teaching about the suitability of marriage partners, we are taught that this consists in compatibility, in terms of compatibility, even exclusively so. But forgotten in this way of thinking is that though all partners are to be suitable to one another, that way of suitability is not universal. For some couples, suitability may mean being more compatible that is, to having many things in common. But for other couples, it may mean that they are suitable because they are more complementary, that they are different, that as one person is strong, the other person is weak, and vice versa. So they are suitable in that sense because they can support one another and strengthen each other. God in his word has not laid down anything more specific for suitability then that the partners should be meet for one another. There's no specificity in the word of God in telling us what that suitability means in terms of compatibility or being complementary. And so we must not take this, this modern emphasis on compatibility and make it normative for Christians. The reason is because God has not commanded any such thing in the word of God. Also, the experience of others is not normative for young people. You know, your experience in your marriage, just because it works well for you, that specific chemistry, that specific combination of personalities or temperament should not then think that that should be normative for everyone else. And one way that we can readily demonstrate this point is think about your friends, people that you're not married to. Think about your friends. Think about how diverse your friends are. Don't you have a lot of friends who are very different from one another? And yet what's in common? It's you. You have this friendship with this person, this person, this person. And yet if you think about those other people... Aren't they often very different from one another? Don't they have very different personalities, very different temperaments? Don't you find that your experience of your friendship with one person, even though it may be as close as your friendship with another, has different qualities about it? Because there's this different chemistry. There's, there's different kinds of personality engagement there. And so, if you can be friends with a diversity of people, and if marriage is essentially a covenant of friendship then why is it not possible that you could marry someone who is of this personality or temperament just as readily as you could marry someone who is of this different personality or temperament? Do you see what I mean? And it's proven in your own experience. Because, I don't know about you, but I have quite a diversity of people I know who are my friends, even some people here in this room. Um... And so, to quote from Dr. J. Adams, he was a reformer of a really pastoral care and ministry in our day. He wrote in a book called Christian Living in the Home. He says that compatibility 
is a dangerous word. Isn't that really a strong statement? He says compatibility is a dangerous word. The concept, he says, is unscriptural. The common concept of compatibility, he says, can lead to disastrous consequences. He continues to say, and this is in his typical style of humor, I think, no one is truly compatible with another because of what it means for us to be sinners. Because we're sinners, none of us are really compatible with each other. Yet in Christ, people can be in the process of becoming more compatible, as it were. We should not then look for someone to marry because they are compatible, because they have similar personalities or interests or backgrounds. Rather, he says, we should seek one who is first a Christian and second is dedicated to submitting themselves to the word of God in dealing with the problems which will come in marriage. No, there's no avoidance of, of problems in marriage. There's no avoidance of conflicts in marriage. So that's not the question. The question is, the person that you want to marry and you yourself, are you both willing to submit to the authority of the word of God in solving those problems when they come? That's the kind of compatibility that you should look for in your spouse. Jay Adams goes on to say, Socioeconomic, ethnic, chronological, and other factors are just icing on the cake. The vital question then will be not whether both fathers drove VWs or Chryslers, but it will be can we solve problems together God's way? And so let's turn to the second head from this part of the Westminster Confession that God has ordained marriage, the purpose of marriage is for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed. Again, to quote from that Puritan Henry Smith, he says that marriage is called matrimony, but that word itself, matrimony, signifies mothers because marriage makes mothers which were once virgins. So we see then that the aspect of bearing children is contained in the very word of marriage. And so, it begs the question, doesn't it, if a couple proceeds to marriage without the intent of procreation, then it begs the question as to why they're getting married at all. Now, I'm not talking about couples where there's an inability to have children. I'm thinking very specifically about a case of people who marry in their youth, and they make a decision, and they say, you know, uh, we just don't want to have children. Uh, and it's not that they have an inability to have children, but they just decide they don't want to have children. Well, I tell you, that goes contrary to the reason that God ordained marriage. And we should not look at it that way. Marriage, you see, is a most blessed ordinance of God. And as a blessing, God intended marriage to be fruitful. And children are the most blessed fruits of marriage. God says this expressly in the Word of God. For example, in Psalm 127, verse 3, we read, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. We also read, in Psalm 68, verse 6, that God setteth the solitary in families. 
This text means that it is part of God's blessing to us that he takes someone who is solitary, someone who is alone and lonely, and he brings them into a marriage and they have children and he is now in a family. That's the sense of the word of God that says, God setteth the solitary in families. And I'll tell you on a personal note, that was so meaningful to me that inside my wedding band are inscribed those words from this psalm. God setteth the solitary in families. We also read that thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall be the man who is blessed, the man that fears the Lord. There are other places also that indicate that it is a great blessing to the wife to be a mother. We read in Psalm 113, He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. It's a matter of praise. Praise the Lord that a woman could become a joyful mother of children. And in 1 Timothy, we read that she shall be saved in childbearing. Fundamentally, in our creation, Jehovah God commanded us to increase with a legitimate issue, as we read in Genesis. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. The covenant of grace has several great promises. As we see that covenant being made with Abraham, we read, the Lord speaking to Abraham, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, was, as it were, drunk with tears because of her sorrow to be barren. We read, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Do you see, you put all these things together, What is the orientation in Scripture about children in marriage and how they are a blessing? Furthermore, there is a teaching in Scripture which speaks of the blessing of children in terms of their plurality, in terms of the multiplicity of children, that that is a blessing from the Lord. Again, as we already read in Psalm 127, it says, Thy children would be like olive plants around thy table. So there's this idea of, of a multiplicity or a plurality of children, not just one or two children. In the same way, in Psalm 128, verse 3, we read, As arrows are the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. And I'm not going to tell you that historically a soldier had so many number of arrows in his quiver. That's all ridiculous. But the teaching is there, though, that there is this, this uh, abundance, that there is this multiplicity of children. And also, we read in Psalm 107, that the Lord sets the poor on high from affliction and makes his families like a flock. Well... How many uh, shepherds or farmers do you know that has a flock of one or two animals? It doesn't agree with the sense of the word flock. So again, there's an idea here of a multiplicity of children 
as being a blessing from the Lord. Thirdly, and our last head we come to is that God ordained marriage, as we read in the confession, uh, for the preventing of uncleanness. And again, to quote from that prominent member of the Westminster Assembly, William Googe, as he talks about a text in scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we read, to avoid fornication, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And Googe, on this text, says that this shows that marriage is a haven to such as are in jeopardy of their salvation through the gusts of temptations to lust. Isn't that a remarkable statement by this Puritan? He says that that text in 1 Corinthians 7 shows that marriage is a haven to such as are in jeopardy of their salvation through the gusts of temptations to lust. And so we are to understand the statement of the assembly at Westminster as they sought to bring forth God's will, which is indicated by Scripture, on the purpose of marriage. When we read that God ordained marriage for the preventing of uncleanness. By the way, this third purpose of marriage is particularly helpful for those that may be discerning a call to marriage. And not only does this scriptural principle give us direction, but it may come to us as a command of God's will. Again, in the words of William Googe. But the Apostle Stiles, and he's speaking generally of the entire 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that good which is commodious and that better which is more expedient, and yet not simply more expedient, but for some persons at some times. For if, on the other hand, any do not have the gift of continency, that means a gift of self-control against your sexual desires, it is not only commodious or more expedient that they marry, but it is absolutely necessary. The reformer John Calvin makes the same point in his magnum opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion as he handles the Seventh Commandment from the Decalogue, which is Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, We are informed by an open declaration that it is not given to every man to keep chastity and celibacy, even if he aspires to it with great zeal and effort. And you have to remember that the historical context for Calvin's writing this is that uh, the reformers in general are writing and speaking against the Roman Catholic doctrine or position of celibacy for the priests. So again, Calvin says, even for those who aspire to celibacy with great zeal and effort, it is a special grace which the Lord bestows only upon certain men. Do we not contend against God and nature ordained by him if we do not accommodate our mode of life to the measure of our ability. Listen how contemporary Calvin sounds in this. If his, that is of every man, if his power to tame lust fails him, let him recognize that the Lord has now imposed the necessity of marriage upon him. The apostle proves this when he enjoys that to flee fornication, quote, every man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Again, quoting from 1 Corinthians 
chapter 7, verse 2. And again, uh, later in that chapter, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. Calvin goes on to say, first he means that the greater part of men are subject to the vice of incontinence, and again, that was the term then they're speaking about, the lack of self-control. Secondly, of those who are so subject, he enjoys all without exception to take refuge in that sole remedy with which to resist unchastity. Therefore, if those who are incontinent or do not have that self-control neglect to cure this weakness by this means, in other words, by the means of marriage, they sin even in not obeying this command from the apostle in the word of God. So then, according to Calvin, we sin if we are so called to marriage and we neglect it. For he says, marriage is the sole remedy for unchastity. And he says, all without exception, even if we fight for our chastity with great zeal and effort. We see the same teaching in our larger catechism. In question number 139, which deals with those sins which are forbidden by the seventh commandment, which is again, thou shalt not commit adultery. We read that one of the sins forbidden by that commandment of God, thou shalt not commit adultery, is the undue delay of marriage. The undue delay of marriage. Sadly, many Protestants today teach this Romish doctrine of preventing uncleanness, asserting man's own self-reliance, arrogantly inventing his own standards for purity and piety, pretending to add to God's holiness because the standard of God's holiness is insufficient, so they, they act by what they say and do, committing their own method for chastity as best while despising God's remedy as inadequate. Calvin, in this same context on the seventh commandment, says, and listen to this, let no one cry out against me as many do today that with God's help he can do all things. Again, the context is specifically about this burning and how that marriage is a remedy for that. Calvin says, don't let anyone cry out against me that with God's help I can do all things. He says, for God helps only those who walk in his ways, that is, in his calling. You see, if you're called to be married, how is God going to help you if you are not pursuing that calling in this matter? Calvin says, all who neglecting God's help strive foolishly and rashly to overcome and surmount their necessities depart from this calling from the Lord. And so I want to end with three objections that I want to answer here in this connection. The first objection, isn't celibacy a holier state than matrimony? After all, in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, the apostle says that if you're celibate, you can serve God better. The answer, no, not at all. When the apostle speaks of what is better in this passage, the sense is that of convenience, not moral principle. And even that convenience is being emphasized in that context because of the oncoming persecution 
of the primitive church in the first century. And we can see that in that passage in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 26 and 29. In verse 26, we read the apostle speaking in, in chapter 7. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress, I say, that it is good for a man so to be, in speaking of, of being celibate. And in verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Why? Because the time is short. In other words, it was not too long after this, in this generation, that there was the great destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That is the context in which the apostle's working when he speaks about what is convenient in terms of being single and serving the Lord. Also, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 19, we read the same point. Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Well, if you take that verse out of context, it seems to contradict everything we were just reading about the blessing of children. But the context is about the coming persecution of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Woe unto them, because it's going to be very difficult if you have a suckling in those days of great evil that was done against Jerusalem and the temple and the people of God. Jesus, in another place, when he wept over the city of Jerusalem, he said, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation, that is, the Messiah coming, that's why all this severe judgment will fall down upon Jerusalem roughly in the year 70 AD. And so, again to quote from William Gooch, he says, all the occasions which move them to remain single arise from the weakness and the wickedness of men. The wickedness who raise troubles against others, their weakness who suffer themselves to be disquieted and too much distracted with affairs of the family, care for the wife, children, and the like. Were not for the wickedness of some and weakness of others, to please the husband or wife would be no hindrance to pleasing the Lord. So, in and of itself, it's not a hindrance to be married in order to please the Lord. The second objection. Well, if we do have the gift of continency or self-control, then it, is, it must then, therefore, certainly be our duty to obey God by remaining single, even as you said that for the contrary case, it was sinful not to marry. The answer, no, not really. Though it would be a sin for one to neglect or even to make an undue delay of marriage, as we said, when you do not have the gift of self-control, to remain single is not necessary, nor is it anywhere commanded in that seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. Again, as William Gouge points out, if any have the gift of self-control, they are not simply bound from marriage. There may be other occasions besides avoiding fornication that would move someone to be married. Third and last objection. What about the historic times in the church, such as in the medieval period, where God has called many to a lifetime of celibacy And many took holy vows to maintain the same. Surely today, God is calling great numbers of people to be single. The answer? No. On the contrary. 
God's gifting of singleness is, and always has been, very rare and unusual. We know this in history, and we know this from Scripture, because God's intent for man was reflected in the prelapsarian state of the garden. In other words, before the fall. Again, we read, before the fall, that it is not good for man to be alone. The medieval period of the church was a dark time because superstition reigned over much of men's lives. One of the great tasks with which the Reformers and later the Puritans had set themselves to correct was this period's doctrine and practice of piety. The vows which the monks and the priests took, and sadly still take, are those which the Westminster Assembly of Divines call, quote, sinful snares, unquote. So we are united with those men of Westminster in their confession of faith, which states that those vows, and this is from chapter 22 of the confession on lawful oaths and vows, that those vows are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares. He's talking about vows like to celibacy, for example. Those vows are such that no Christian should entangle himself. And again, to finish in the words of William Gouge, quote, of all the children of Adam that ever were, not one to a million of those that have come to ripeness of years have been true eunuchs all their lifetime. And so we sum up these words from A.W. Pink. Any teaching, this is a quote, any teaching that leads men and women to think of the marriage bond as the sign of bondage, any public sentiment that cultivates celibacy as more desirable and honorable, or to substitute anything else for marriage and home, not only invades God's ordinance, but opens the door to nameless crimes and threatens the very foundations of society. Let's pray. O blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your teaching from the Word of God. We thank you for the Westminster Confession of Faith, for Puritan brethren before us, for their great insights into your Holy Word. Help us, O Lord, to be transformed by the Word of God, to put off ways of worldly thinking and to put on ways of biblical thinking, even that more and more we may have the mind of Christ. Hear us now. Please be with us the rest of this day, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.